Read these stories and find out more about our books at blackandeducation.com. In May of 1902, a peace treaty was signed between Boyer forces, who were traditionally of Dutch background, and British forces, putting an end to a set of wars that had taken place between the two sides. After a few years, the former Boer republics then joined with the British territories, and in May of 1910, they formed the Union of South Africa. Now, this was an all-white government, a white-run government, and just two years later, in 1912, the African National Congress formed and was created to respond to this situation. And ironically, just six years later, in 1918, Nelson Mandela was also born. Now, almost immediately, the government began to put into law its suppression of black South Africans. It passed the Natives Land Act, which essentially set aside about 13% of South Africa's land for the native population. It prohibited blacks from buying or renting or even using land outside of areas that were designated for them and set aside for them. It also enacted a series of past laws, which held that blacks had no real reason to be in municipal areas unless they were there for employment reasons, and thus required them to have passage, passes in order to be able to control their movement and to find out where they were going. Now, these laws and so many others were already in place before apartheid became the official form of government in South Africa. And I think it's very important to understand and to study the types of laws and the kinds of laws that were put into place to really understand how the suppression took place. In 1948, the National Party, which were traditionally represented by the Boers who were negatively impacted during the Boer Wars, won the national election. Now, they brought into existence an even more crushing form of government, and apartheid was born. Now, apartheid literally means apartness, and it was the basis for how the races would be further separated under the government in South Africa. There would be a series of laws that they would pass to support their efforts. The Suppression of Communism Act was passed in 1950, and what this did was it essentially gave the government the power to arrest or to harass anyone who was seeking to bring about social and political change in South Africa. What the law did was it defined communism as a doctrine or scheme that was aimed to bring about political change through some unlawful act. So essentially any doctrine or any scheme that was looked upon to try to bring about political and social change in a way that was not uh, what the government thought was appropriate could then therefore be labeled as communistic and the people who were supportive were therefore communists. And they fell on the lease of law and they were then able to be harassed or arrested or detained or refrained from going to meetings and things of that nature. So this Suppression of Communism Act set up a way to identify people who might be working against the government for political change. The Population Registration Act required all residents of South Africa to be classified as either colored, which meant they were, they were mixed-race background or Asian, as Bantu or native, or as white. A national registry was set up and everyone was issued identity cards to identify them based on how they were classified. In another act, the Prohibition of Mixed Marriages Act, it made it illegal for blacks and whites to marry. And the Immorality Act of 1950 forbade intercourse between whites and non-whites. Now, one of the most damaging acts, if you ask me, was the Bantu Education Act of 1953. 
This act put firmly in the hands of the government the education of blacks in South Africa and essentially forced religious-run schools that were operating at the time to turn over their students to the government so the government would now be in charge in teaching and educating essentially black South Africans. One of the authors of this act, the Minister of Native Affairs, said that blacks should be educated for their opportunities in life, which at the end of the day were not very many opportunities in apartheid South Africa. There was also an attack on voting rights. In 1951, an effort began to remove colored South Africans from the regular voting rolls and put them on separate voting rolls where they would only be able to vote for white South Africans to represent them in the House of Assembly or in the African South African Senate. Another act that had far-reaching effects was the Group Areas Act of 1950. Now, this built upon earlier laws, and what it essentially did is it set aside separate areas of the country for blacks and whites. If you were a South African living in an area not designated for your race, you could be forcibly removed by the government and, set and moved to a different area of the country, and the government did so with force and with guns. Sophia Town was a lively area in Johannesburg. It was one of the few areas where blacks were allowed to own land. It was home to doctors and lawyers and artists and so forth. Now, outsiders saw it as a place of violence and of gangs, but Sophia Town held a special significance to many black South Africans. It was the only place that housed the only pool that black children in Johannesburg could play in, and it was a place teeming with culture and music. So in the early 1950s, when residents of Sophia Town started getting eviction notices under the Group Areas Act, there was bound to be a groundswell of resistance. Sophia Town had newly been designated as a white area, and the people there were being notified that they were going to be forcibly removed and relocated to an area called the Meadowlands in Soweto. Nelson Mandela and members of the African National Congress were very active in Johannesburg. They were working to oppose this removal campaign, and they found very willing participants in the residents of Sophia Town. Meetings were held indoors and outdoors, always with the presence of armed troops there. And cries began to ring out from the crowd, over our dead bodies, over our dead bodies, we will not be removed. There were some 50,000 people in Sophia Town, and they were, of course, told that they were going to be moved to an area that was better for them, with better living conditions. This, by the way, was the message the government always sent, the tagline, this was going to be better for the people, better for the native people, better for education, better living conditions. This was always the message the government sent with the laws that it passed. So February 9th, 1955 was the date that the government set for removals to begin in Sophia Town. The African National Congress and its leaders realized they did not have enough firepower to really combat or face the level of force that the government was willing to show and willing to put out. So they told the protesters to stand down. They asked the people not to actively resist. Thousands of armed troops and police officers showed up and surrounded Sophia Town. They came in with government trucks and with equipment with which to tear down houses. They went from door to door yelling and banging on the doors, asking the occupants to open up, open up. And they carted off entire families to their new living areas some 13 miles away. Some years later, another massive protest was planned. Now, as you know, black South African men and now women were required not to leave their homes unless they had with them these special passes. And on March 21st, 1960, a special demonstration was planned. Black South Africans gathered in Sharpville. The plan was to have men and women leave their passes at home and to present themselves to police to be arrested. They hoped to demonstrate the unfairness of the past laws, to overcrowd the prisons, and to slow down the economy in the area because so many of the black South Africans did important work throughout the, throughout the cities. Some 5,000 men and women showed up to police and authorities on that day and presented themselves to be arrested. 
The police then decided to open fire on the unarmed men and women, and some 69 of them were killed. Following this event, a number of people filed civil complaints against the government. The government responded to these complaints by passing the Indemnity Act. The Indemnity Act indemnified all officers and anybody acting under the authority of the government from any type of civil or criminal proceedings. The government also went back and made the law, the law retrospective and retroactive in that it started from the date of the Sharpeville event. So therefore, nobody who was involved in the Sharpeville massacre ever faced charges. <laughs>